All right, we're going to dig into 1 John 4, 1 through 6, but before we do, let's pray. Jesus, your word is omni-relevant. And so we open your word this morning looking for truths to inform us and form us and convict us and comfort us, to pluck us up and plant us, to break us down and build us up. May your word be like an assassin and a midwife this morning to bring about your life within us. We look to you now. Jesus, you are worthy of being known. You are worthy of being trusted. You are worthy of being treasured. And so as we open your word this morning, would you help us to behold you, to know you, to trust you, to treasure you. And would you use this to help us persevere and to triumph in the faith. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Love without truth is sentimentality. Truth without love is harshness. Love without truth is sentimentality. Truth without love is harshness. As we've been working our way through 1 John, you've probably noticed this theme of love woven throughout the book. It's It's a theme we've seen the last two Sundays, and we're actually going to continue to see in the upcoming two Sundays, the next two Sundays. John is absolutely concerned that Christians be marked by genuine and even even extravagant love. And of course, this is something that, that many in the modern church and even those outside of the church would agree with today. However, much of how we view and define love today fails to be the robust biblical kind of love that John and the authors of Scripture celebrate and command, precisely because it's a love stripped of the truth of the gospel. And it's the truth of the gospel, the good news about Jesus Christ, about his great love for us, about who he is And what he's done that makes love genuine and steady and extravagant. Without the truth, our love descends into the realms of being sentimentality, well-wishing, empty approval. And that's why the passage that we're looking at this morning is concerned not just with Christian love, but with Christian truth. It's sandwiched between two passages about Christian Love. Why would John do that? Why would he take a break from talking about the importance of Christian love to talk about the importance of Christian truth? It must be because love and truth are equally important. And not only that, but according to Christianity, they're interdependent. You can't actually have one 
without the other. Love without truth fails to be love. Truth without love fails to be truth. That's why Tim and Kathy Keller put it so wonderfully in their book on marriage. Love without truth is sentimentality. Truth without love is harshness. See, we need both as Christians. We're not called to be sentimentalists, concerned only about feeling a particular way, but never being grounded in reality. But on the other hand, we're not called to be harsh, concerned with getting our facts straight without considering the needs, the feelings, the concerns of those around us. Christians are people of love and truth, truth and Love And so John interrupts his teaching on Christian love to exhort us to continue in Christian truth. And he doesn't mince words while doing so. He tells us that Christians are to be resolutely committed to being people of truth. And because of this, Christians are also resolutely committed to discerning truth from error. And the reason that that uh, Christians are so resolutely committed to identifying what is true and identifying what is false is because Christians are resolutely committed to knowing and trusting and loving Jesus Christ. So let's turn our eyes to our passage this morning. We see John communicate that authentic Christians discern and cling to the truth concerning Christ by God's word and spirit. Authentic Christians discern and cling to the truth concerning Christ by God's word and spirit. If you'd like to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, may we listen with reverence and joy. John writes, inspired by the Holy Spirit, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Look with me briefly at the test, the truth, and the triumph. The test, the truth, and the triumph. First, we see the test. Now, this test differs a little from the test we've been looking at up until this point. The tests we've generally been seeing throughout the book of 1 John have been tests wherein we discern our own authenticity as professing believers. There's an element of that here. Uh, John does encourage and, and assure the churches he's writing to by telling them that they've continued in the truth. They've been tested and they've persevered, so they will continue Uh, in the truth, uh, uh, as time goes on as well, he says. 
But still, this test is a little different that that John gives here. The test John is giving here is given so that true Christians, authentic Christians, might be able to discern true teaching from false teaching. It's a a test that true Christians give to teachers, false teachers. Whenever someone claims to know God or to teach on behalf of God, how can you discern whether or not what they say and teach is true? When a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, how do you discern whether or not what they're saying is true? When your coworker says that there are many paths to God and we've all just got to kind of figure out the one that works best for us, how do you discern whether or not what they say is true? When, when you have a friend that you grew up in church with and they say, you know, I believe this Christianity stuff for a long time, but I'm starting to question whether or not the Bible's teaching about sex and gender and marriage isn't incredibly outdated. How do you discern whether or not what they say is true? Well, John says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. You've got to test the spirits, John says. What exactly does that mean? First, to understand what it means to test the spirits, we need to understand what is meant by the word spirits. What does John mean in his use of this word, spirits? Does he mean angels and demons? Does he mean the spirits of people? Since we as human beings are not just material beings, but we're spiritual beings as well. Yeah, you could say that. But to get even more specific, he seems to be talking particularly about false teachers, since immediately after the command to test the spirits, he says, for many false prophets, many false teachers have gone out into the world. And you might wonder if he's talking about false teachers, why is he telling us to test the spirits? Well, you see, John, he is communicating here that that there's a spiritual reality behind true and false doctrine. There's a spiritual reality behind true teaching and false teaching. Knowing and discerning the truth concerning Christ, it's not, a, it's not merely like an intellectual exercise, okay? It's also very much a spiritual exercise. When lies about Christ are taught and propagated by some teacher, you can be sure that there's a demonic, satanic reality behind it. And on the other hand, when when the truth about Christ is taught and believed, you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit is behind it, since one of his most central ministries in the life of a believer is to illuminate Jesus Christ. There's a war, you see, there's a war going on between true doctrine and false doctrine, and it's a spiritual war. There's a spiritual reality behind it. So then that's what John means by spirits, but how are we to test the spirits? There's a number of different ways the the scriptures tell us we can do this. One is by just simply looking at the character of those that teach. You know them by their fruits, Jesus said. But then John gives us two specific ways here. First, he says that we ought to test the spirits by what they do with Jesus Christ. Look at verses 2 and 3. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. 
So this is one way we test the spirits too. What do they do with Jesus Christ? What do they believe and teach about Jesus Christ? A little bit of background here. We've talked about some of this already, but remember who these false teachers are. John is specifically talking about these false teachers. He's talking about these Gnostics. And remember the Greek word uh, gnosko or gnosis is the word that means knowledge. And while Gnosticism took many forms in those days, uh, there were two major teachings always present in Gnosticism. First, that salvation comes through some sort of mystical knowledge, sort of inner light that you find within yourself. And it's, it's this mystical knowledge. And then secondly, the, 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 the second major teaching of Gnosticism is that the physical, the material world, material things, physical things are inherently evil. And so, of course, those who believe that the physical is inherently evil deny all sorts of important Christian truths since some of the most central truths in the Christian faith involve physical, material things. Like, they, they, would, absolute, they would deny that the one true God created the material world. They would deny the resurrection of the dead, the resurrection of the body at the end of the age when Christ returns. They would deny the importance of baptism in the Lord's Supper. And of course, they would deny the doctrine of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. They could not believe that God would take on humanity. So they believed another ancient heresy that we call Docetism, that, that's a word that means to seem or to appear. And the Docetists taught that Jesus only appeared to be human. He only seemed to be human. So in response to this, John says that one way to test such teachers by what they do with Jesus Christ, if they deny that Jesus is the God-man, if they deny the person and work of Jesus Christ, they're false teachers. And furthermore, John says that we test false teachers by what the Word of God says. Look at what the, uh, by, by what the Scriptures say. Look at verse 6. He says, We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. That just sounds like the height of arrogance, doesn't it? And it would be if any of us said it. But remember who is writing, who is talking here. By we here, of course, he's talking about the apostles, those who were commissioned by Jesus and put in the role by Jesus to authoritatively write and communicate New Testament Scripture. So we could read this as John saying, whoever knows God listens to the Scriptures. Whoever is not from God does not listen to the Scriptures. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. And indeed, the scriptures are our final authority for testing true and false doctrine. We must test teachers by what they do with Jesus Christ. But how do we, how do we know the truth concerning Jesus Christ? How do we know the truth concerning Jesus Christ? We know the truth concerning Jesus Christ from the scriptures. How do we know that he's God? From the scriptures. How do we know that he came in the flesh to save us? We know that from the scriptures. So how do we test teaching? We test teaching by the scriptures. When the Mormons come to your door and say that there are actually many gods and that Jesus Christ is just one of them and that you yourself, you can become a god, you can open up your Bible to Isaiah 45.5 and say, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. 
When Jehovah's Witnesses knock on your door and and tell you that Jesus Christ is just a really high-ranking angel, powerful angel, but not the one true God himself, you can open your Bible to John 1.1 and read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. When your coworker tells you that there are many ways to God and that we just have to find the one that works best for us, you can turn in your Bible to John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. We test the spirits, and we test the spirits by what they do with Jesus Christ according to the word of God. Because the word of God reveals the truth concerning Jesus Christ, which brings us to the next part, the truth. Now here I want to look specifically and explicitly at what the truth is. You know, of course, we could talk all day about false teaching, and that might be helpful in, in some regard, but, but ultimately the best way to discern the truth is to know the authentic thing and to test everything else by it. Knowing the authentic thing is the best way to discern a counterfeit. So who is Jesus Christ? How ought we to understand who he is as a person? How ought we to communicate about who he is as a person? John tells us something very important. It gives us a statement loaded with theological meaning that I'd like to unpack for a moment. Look at verse 2. He says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Everyone that confesses, listen to this, that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. I want to particularly look at that statement right in the middle. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. First, look at that word come. Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. It's a very important word. And it's one that the New Testament writers continually and carefully use to talk about the conception and birth of Jesus Christ. And notice it gives the idea of pre-existence. The fact that he has come in the flesh would necessarily mean that his conception and birth were not his beginning. So that's why the New Testament writers continually use language like this to talk about Jesus's conception and birth, because I want to communicate that this is not like any other conception and birth. He did not begin to exist at the moment he was conceived. He existed with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, the, the Holy Trinity for all eternity past. There was never a time when he was not the Puritans used to say. And in his incarnation, he left the praises, the position, the pleasure of heaven to come be our Savior King. This was the coming of the one who preexisted for all of eternity, the Savior, the Son of God himself, stepping into time, into space, into creation, into humanity. And indeed, he did step into humanity. Look at When it says he took upon himself humanity, notice that John says he came in the flesh. He didn't just appear to be human. He wasn't just human for a short time, a certain amount of time. He actually became human and did so in a way that he didn't cease to be God. And he will be such for all of eternity. It's one person with two natures. I know this is going to get a little technical, but this is really important truth for us to cling to as Christians. He's one person with two natures. He's got a divine nature and a human nature. 
And the phrase that, 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 that we use to describe this as Christians is hypostatic union. Can you say hypostatic union? There we go. It's a big word. I think it, there it is. Beautiful. Hypostatic union. It's, it's a union between two natures in one individual existence. He is God, truly and fully God, and he is man, truly and fully man. And it's not as if the two natures mix together, sort of fuse together, so that something is compromised of the two natures by their union. What is true of God is true of Christ and his divinity. He is almighty and all-knowing and all-powerful and everywhere present all at once. He's, he is truly God. In his divinity, he is truly God. And at the same time, in his humanity, he has also been made like us in every respect except for sin. In his humanity, he grew tired. He suffered pain and loss. He was tempted. He burped. He slept. He was limited in his knowledge and capacities. Two natures, a divine nature and a human nature, united in one person without confusion, change, division, or separation, to use some very old language to describe it. That's the hypostatic union in a nutshell. Now, whenever we talk about such big theological truths, we never want to talk about them in such a way that sees them as kind of abstracted from, unconnected from our Lives. And so the question that we ought to ask about the doctrine of the incarnation, about the hypostatic union is, so what? And maybe it feels a bit odd asking such a question. I guess it is. You know, at the end of the day, we want to know these truths about Christ simply because he's worthy of being known. He's worthy of our careful thought and consideration. He's worthy of being known and treasured and sought after. He's worthy because of his infinite worth, simply because of who he is. And he's worthy because of what he's done for us in coming in the flesh as our Savior King. He's infinitely worthy. Still, it's, it's a good question. As the Puritans used to say, well, what are some of the uses of this truth? How is this truth useful to us in a fallen, broken world, here are a few uses for us to keep in mind. First, this truth means that we have a God who sympathizes with us. We have a God who sympathizes with us. Hebrews 4.15 says that, that we have a great high priest who can sympathize with us because he's been made like us in every respect except without sin. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. But God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, they, they don't sympathize with us in our humanity. Of course, God loves us because he is love. He has compassion on us and he relates to us in an understanding way. But ultimately, only one person of the Holy Trinity has suffered pain, has suffered temptation, has suffered Want and hunger and loss and abandonment and poverty and anxiety and the like. And that's Jesus, the Son of God, because he's taken on our humanity. And because of that, you have a God in heaven who can truly sympathize with you. Like when all of the horrible circumstances that one faces in a broken world, our God and our Savior, you know, suffering can be such a lonely thing. 
But God, our God, Jesus Christ, says to you, I know. I know what it's like. I've experienced the same. I've been broken. My family and friends have abandoned me. I had loved ones die. I was tortured and beaten and crucified. So I know what it's like to experience excruciating pain in your body. I sweat blood in the garden. I know what it's like to be overwhelmed by suffering in this life. I tasted death. I know what that's like. I've died. And I'm here with you. And I'm for you. And I will never leave you or forsake you. Because of the reality of the incarnation, we have a God who sympathizes with us. We don't suffer alone. Second, this truth means that we have hope and comfort in suffering. Here's the reality. Suffering is a non-negotiable in this life. This world is it's a broken place. Horrendous things happen to us and are done to us by others. And what you believe in those moments and those circumstances makes all the difference. It makes all the difference between an abundance of hope and, an, and a poverty of hope. I've never known or believed that more than I do right now. I spent the last week with, with a family who has faced horrendous, horrendous suffering. And they've mourned, and they've wept, and they've lamented, and they've struggled. Yet they've not mourned as the world mourns. They've not mourned without hope. They have abounded in hope. They've rejoiced in sadness because of who Jesus Christ is. Not just because of who he is, but because of who he is to them. They've rejoiced because Jesus Christ has come in the flesh to suffer on our behalf so that one day all suffering will cease. All tears will be wiped away. They know who he is and they know that he's defeated death and that one day he will come in the flesh again to destroy death once and for all so that we, his people, can reign with him in a new heaven and earth for all eternity. Doctrinal beliefs, doctrine is not a hobby. It's not an intellectual pastime. Your beliefs, they're either that which keeps you afloat in the storms of life or that which causes you to sink. False beliefs will inevitably cause you to despair and to lack Hope. If we, if, we don't, if we don't have a Savior who came in the flesh, if he didn't truly come in the flesh, if we don't have this truth hidden in our hearts, then, then what's the point of it all? It's meaningless. Biblical doctrinal beliefs, the truth about Jesus Christ comforts. It will cause you to abound in hope. Suffering is coming. Listen, suffering is coming at some point. So cling to the truth about Jesus Christ. Cling to his person, to his work, to his life, to his suffering, to his resurrection, and to his promise to soon return and destroy suffering and death forever. Cling to him. Lastly, this truth means that... that We don't have to fear the final judgment. My friends, Jesus Christ coming in the flesh 
he came and he promised a second coming in the flesh. And when he comes again, he's going to enforce God's judgment. Sinners are going to be brought before him and judged. And those who opposed God are going to be cast in the lake of fire into hell forever. Others, though, will be with him in a new heaven and a new earth for all of eternity. And you know, you know and I know that we deserve to be in the lake of fire. We deserve to suffer eternal conscious torment forever. Our consciences remind us of that. God's law reminds us of that. The enemy reminds us of that, but the incarnation of Jesus Christ speaks another word over us. Because of who Christ is, we receive another verdict because he came as the God-man He can and does reconcile God and man. He's the only one that can truly be our mediator. He's the only one who can mediate for us. Because he is God, he perfectly represents God to us and perfectly reconciles us to God. Because he's man, he perfectly represents us to God and brings us into God's presence free from shame, guilt, or fear of judgment. Don't you see, we, we have a Savior who is both God and man. If we don't, then, then we aren't safe and secure. The relationship can't be reconciled. The chasm can't be bridged. The brokenness can't be healed by any other than a mediator who is truly God and truly man. But because of who Christ is and because he's done what he's done, he's satisfied every requirement for humanity to be at home in their God and maker. He has satisfied God's justice. He's made us totally and completely acceptable so that we can face final judgment with confidence, John tells us in 1 John 4, 17. And then there's more good news. Not only do we not have to fear the final judgment we have everything we need to persevere until that day. Look with me, lastly, at the triumph. John encourages his readers by reminding them that they have overcome lies, and more, he tells them that they will continue to overcome lies. They will overcome and persevere to the last day. They will make it home, safe, complete, victorious, forever. How so? Look at verse 4. He says, little children, you are from God, and you have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. First, John says, we overcome by God's Spirit. When John speaks of he who is in you that is greater than he who is in the world, he's talking about the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God, along with the Father and the Son. There's one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Spirit's role in our salvation is to indwell God's people. And the moment he comes to indwell a person, we call that regeneration or the new birth. But my friends, the Spirit, you know, he not only comes to indwell us that we might be regenerated and then just kind of ceases to to work in our lives, he continually is at work in and among his people to accomplish God's glory and his people's good. 
And one of the ways that he does that is that he gives us discernment. He gives us discernment. He helps us discern truth from error. And we need him for this, don't you see? Apart from him, you know, we inevitably fall away. Apart from him, we're no match for our enemy. We're no match for Satan. We're no match for the world. We're no match for the spirit of the Antichrist. We're no match for the plethora of false teachers. We're no match for the spiritual realities behind all the false teaching that we're bound to encounter. My friends, we we ought to take these enemies seriously because they are greater and more powerful than we are. But equally as true, we need not fear because he who is within us is greater than he who is in the world. We take our spiritual opposition seriously because it's powerful, but we need not fear because the Holy Spirit is infinitely more powerful. He who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. No one can snatch you from his powerful grip. You cannot fall away while he is resolved to keep you. So we will persevere. We will continue on. We will overcome and triumph. The Holy Spirit in his sovereign grace will see to it. But then we must ask the question, how will he see to it? How will he cause us to triumph? You know, that's, that's the, end for which he, the, the end which he will most certainly bring about. But he's not just a God of the ends, you see. He's a God of the means also. And of course, the chief means that he will use to give us victory over spiritual opposition and help us to persevere, John says, is the word of God. We're going to look at verse 6 again. John says, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Again, remember who's speaking here. It's the Apostle John. He's saying that whoever knows God listens to the apostles. They listen to the apostolic witness of Scripture. And it's by the Scriptures that we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error, he says. The Scriptures are the chief means through which the Spirit works to give us discernment and causes us to persevere. Of course, many people today, they've they've sought to make it seem like the Spirit and the Scriptures are in competition, almost as if we have to choose one or the other. Nothing could be further from the truth. The Spirit is the one who inspired Holy Scripture. And the Scriptures are the chief means through which the Holy Spirit works in our lives. He saves and sanctifies and preserves us through the means of Holy Scripture as His chief instrument. So if you want to love the Holy Spirit, love the Bible. If you want to persevere and triumph in the Christian life, read and mark and inwardly digest your Bible. If you want to know the truth concerning Jesus Christ, read your Bible. If you want to behold Christ and find hope in suffering and be free from fear and guilt and shame, read your Bible. It's here on these pages, my friends, that God has revealed himself and our salvation and our Christ and thus our great hope. It's here that we meet with and commune with the triune God. It's here that we learn the truth about who God is, about the God who is truth, that we might be people of the truth. So I plead with you, my friends, test all things by the word of God. Know the truth. 
found in the Word of God and triumph in the Holy Spirit by the Word of God. Authentic Christians discern and cling to the truth concerning Christ by God's Word and Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we trust that you have spoken a timely word to us. Your word is, is omni-relevant. It's always timely. And so would you help us this morning? We're in need of you. We, 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 need, we needed to hear your voice. We need to commune with you. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we pray that you would work within us by the presence and power of the Spirit to write your word on our hearts, that we might be comforted, that we might look to our Savior who sympathizes with us, that we might be stirred up in hope, that we might persevere to the end in this hope until this hope becomes sight. We look forward to that day. We want it to come quickly. So we ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen.